In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, the Scripture is quite clear that the Father has given all authority regarding His church to the Son. In Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, the Scripture there says, "...and He put all things under His feet and gave Him to be head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all." You begin there on the front page, the first thing that we're supposed to note is that the church is Christ's body. But I want you to keep looking and flip over a page to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4 and note very clearly... The Scripture there says in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all, and in you all. The Scripture there declares that there is one body. We learn that just as there is one true God and Father of all, just as there is one true Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, just as there is one Holy Spirit, just as there is one hope of salvation in Christ, just as there is one baptism that saves, there is one body. That is, there is one church. And yet, having said that, I have in my possession this nifty little orange book which is entitled The Handbook of Denominations. And in this book, I can open up to the very first couple of pages and I can count in the table of contents alone 11 pages of different kinds of churches. In fact, if my memory serves me correctly, there are in this book listed 279 different kinds of Christian churches. And this book was put out in 1981. I don't know what a modern more up-to-date edition of this would say. And so we're left asking this all-important question. Where did all of these churches come from? Is this what God wanted? Is this what God intended? Tonight, we want to answer this question. How did it go from Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4, one body, one church, to all these different kinds of churches that we have today teaching all manner of things even different things regarding how to be saved. How did that happen? This lesson is going to basically be in three parts. First of all, we're going to take a look at Scripture and notice what God wanted, and we're going to notice what God expected. Then we're going to have a simplified overview of history to see exactly what happened in religion and in Christianity. And then finally, we're going to conclude by noting where the Franklin Church of Christ fits in all of this history and what it is that we are and what we're trying to do as one of these churches that are in the world today. And so we're going to first look at what did God want. I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15 and verse 9. In Matthew chapter 15 and verse 9, the Scripture there Jesus, of course, talking to the Pharisees. He says in verse 8, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. I want you to note that Jesus did not condemn the fact that men were teaching. 
What he condemned was the fact that what they were teaching were, in fact, the commandments of men. Men had come up with those things. And when we consider a book filled with all manner of churches, I think we can assume that at least some of them must be doing exactly what Jesus said here. At least some of these churches must be, in fact, teaching the doctrines of men. But what I want you to notice is what Jesus says about that. That if we are a part of a congregation that is teaching man-made doctrines, doctrines written by men, then our worship is in vain. It does us absolutely no good. We might as well not even be a part of that church. We might as well not even gather together to worship if what we are doing is following the commands of men. But by contrast, take a look at Matthew chapter 7. We're going to begin reading in verse 13. In Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. In Matthew 7 and verse 13, the Scripture there says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Verse 17, Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I'd like to discuss the last few verses first, and then we'll jump back to verses 13 and 14. Here we find the contrast. In Matthew 15, 9, it said that there were some who were teaching the commandments and following the commandments of men. But those who desire to go to heaven must do God's will. We've got to follow the Father's will. I want you to notice who he was talking to here. Many will say to me in that day, verse 22, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Were these religious people? Were these sincere people? Were these people who went to church every Sunday? They certainly were. They were so sincere and so religious, they were arguing with the Lord Himself about it. But Jesus still said to them, Depart from Me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. These are not folks who knew the Lord at one time and had fallen away. These were people who had never known the Lord. You see, Jesus didn't ask for sincere religion. Jesus asked for obedience to the Father's will. And these people practice iniquity, despite their religion. As I look today at the numerous churches, and I've talked with folks in many churches, and I hear people talk today about having unity among all of these churches, and I want you to understand, I want unity. I want all churches to come together. But today, all the churches are different, and they're still proclaiming that they're united. And I hear about these unity meetings, and oh, the walls are coming down. And you go and ask these folks that are still in their different churches how they can teach different things, be a part of different doctrines, different bodies, and yet claim to have unity. And they'll say, well, as long as you call Jesus Lord, nothing else matters. But these folks called Jesus Lord, didn't they? 
Jesus said that wasn't enough. He wants obedience. But go back up to verse 13 and 14. And he says there, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Flip over to the back page of the worksheet that you have. I just want you to consider, as I have talked with folks, I, I've been to unity meetings. And I've been to unity prayers, and I've seen folks from different churches and pastors that teach different things stand up and talk about how united they are. I've heard them on radio programs. And I've asked them, how can you claim to be united when you teach such different things? And the answer is given. Well, we're all going to the same place. We're just taking different ways to get there. But brethren, look at Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. It says that how many ways lead to life? Only one. And how is that way described? It's narrow and difficult, and few will find it. But there's another way, and it's called a broad way. It leads to destruction. And you can see by our contrast here that if I wanted to, I could walk on the left side or down the middle or on the right side or I could zigzag back and forth. In fact, what I learned from this is I can go to hell however I want to. But if I want to go to heaven, which way must I go? I've got to go God's way. And so my question tonight then is, if we're all going to the same place but we're taking different ways, which of these two places are we going to? Because there's only one way that leads to life. And that's God's way. I believe we all want to go to heaven here tonight. And if we're going to do that, we have to give up our pride and our ideas and man-made doctrines and we've just got to follow what God says in His Word. We continue on by looking in John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. In John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. Jesus there on His final night before His betrayal and death, He prays to the Father. And in John chapter 17, verse 20 says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in Me through their Word, that they may all be one, as You, Father, are in Me and I in You, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that You sent Me. What did Jesus want all the believers to be? One. He wanted unity. He wanted sameness. He didn't want division. And notice how he describes it. As you, Father, are in me, and as I am in you. And so we look at this supposed unity that the denominations are telling us is out there today. And they gather together on Saturday night at a civic center or a convention center or a football stadium, and they talk about how united they are. But then on Sunday, they're all in different buildings and they're all teaching different things. Is that how the Father and the Son are united? On Saturday night, we find them together and we'll ask them, oh yeah, we're together. The walls have come tumbling down. But come Sunday morning, they're teaching different things. They're worshiping in different ways. Oh no. The Father and Son are united in purpose and work in teaching. And that's what Jesus wanted for us and for all believers. Unity. And notice why that the world may believe that you sent me. Think about this. We've got Joe Coca-Cola over here who decides he wants to get right with the Lord and become a child of God. And so he goes to church A and says, what have I got to do to be saved? 
And the guy at church A says, well, here's what you got to do. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And then he goes to church B. And he says, what have I got to do to be saved? Now, that guy over there said, no, 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 no. Here's all you have to do. And then he goes to a third church, and he says something different. And to a fourth church, and he says something different. And to a fifth church, and he, sa- and he goes through these 200 and some odd churches, and they're all saying something different. Is this guy going to be convicted that Jesus was from God? What do you think? He's probably going to say what so many today say. If all those religious people can't figure it out, why should I bother? But what if he did this? What if he went to one congregation and somebody there said, here's what you've got to do in order to serve the Lord. And he went to another one and the person there said, yes, that's exactly it. That's what we do here. And he went to another one and said, yeah, that's it. This, uh, that's what we do here. And he goes to another one. That's exactly what you've got to do. Now, is that guy going to be convicted? Far more likely, isn't it? Jesus said, I want all of them to be one. Because confusion will distract people from God. Look in Matthew 16, 18. In Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, Peter, of course, has given the good confession, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, And I also say to you that you're Peter, and on this rock I'll build my 279 churches, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against any of them. Is that what your Bible says? On this rock I'll build my church. One. Singular. And whose church is it? It's Christ's church. By the way, for any who have wondered, the Franklin Church of Christ has chosen the name Church of Christ, not because we are a part of a denomination of all the churches that have that name, but because we want to demonstrate our ownership. And that's all. And here's one of the passages we've used to provide authority for that. I just wanted to throw that in so you'd understand. We're not connected or affiliated with any other congregation in that way. We're an independent, autonomous group, and we belong to Christ. And so we've called ourselves a church of Christ. I'm going to look at one more passage. First Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to begin at about verse 11. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 11, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, It has been declared... Excuse me. Let's back up to verse 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul said, God doesn't want any division. He wants us to be of the same mind. He wants us to teach the same thing. He doesn't want us falling behind our favorite teachers and going after them. No division. I think it's pretty clear what God wanted. Oh, there are other verses we could look at, but I think this gets it down for us. What did God want? Unity. How many doctrines did He want taught? One. How many churches did He want established? 
Only one. But that's not what God expected. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Despite what God wanted, God recognized that this is not what would happen. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 18, Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 11 18, For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Paul said that there must be factions, there must be divisions, and that these divisions would show who is approved. Let me explain that to you. Flip over again to the back page of your worksheet here and notice illustration B from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you consider what's going on here at Corinth, the gospel is coming to Corinth, people are coming into the church and they're converting folks right and left, and folks are becoming children of God, and yet it stands to reason that eventually... Somebody, somewhere within this church is not going to want to obey God. They're not going to want to go along with what the Word of God says. And so we find folks who believe different things. Certainly they believe some of the same things, but they believe different things as well. What's going to happen here? Well, eventually this is going to polarize and there's going to be a problem and we're going to have a division. And now we have a much easier time learning who's approved. When we went to the congregation where they're all together and we're not sure who's saying what or what to believe about what the congregation stands for, we've got some problems there. But once this division occurs and solidifies, then we can go and we can take our Bibles and we can compare it to what each congregation is teaching. And if one's not doing the Word of God, we know full well it's not accepted. If one is doing what's in the Word of God, we can tell. It is. And so Paul pointed out division would come. God knew that division would come. And that's exactly what has happened to Christ's church. That's what God wanted. That's what God expected. Open up your worksheet. And let's move to the second part of our lesson tonight. Please keep in mind, as we go through this, that this is a simplified overview. Not an exhaustive historical discourse. But I just want us to see what happened in history. To go from here in about 30 to 33 A.D. where the church was established on the day of Pentecost. About 3,000 were saved that day and were added to the church. And the Lord added to the church daily. During this period of time and following this, the church underwent severe persecution. The Romans and the Jews were both opposed to them. And this had, while certainly it wasn't exactly fun, it had a way of keeping the church pure and keeping the faithful in line. Because it would weed out those who were uncommitted and undevoted to God and to His will. I Think about this for just a moment. If you were not devoted and not committed and really didn't care about the Lord and His will, and somebody came in here tonight and said, deny the Lord or I'm going to blow your brains out, what would you do? Well, if you're undevoted and uncommitted, just cool, Jesus is. And that's exactly what persecution did. But, under the Emperor Constantine, Christianity became legalized and the persecution ended. And then Constantine made what I consider a grave error. And in the year 325 A.D., Constantine invited representatives 
from the empire, from churches all over the empire, to come to a city called Nicaea. Because there was a heresy, what they believed was a heresy, that was going abroad, and they wanted to make sure to squelch that, and so they wrote a document that's called the Nicene Creed. It's very short. There's not much to it. Now, there's not much problem, per se, with writing, here's what we believe, which is what creed means. The problem was, is that they turned around and took that document and they sent it back to all the churches and they said, this is how you are going to tell who is faithful. This is how we decide whether or not you're really a child of God. It would be the essential thing of saying, we're going to send these two things back with you and this is, this is what you follow. This is how we know you're really a Christian. So I thought God had already written this one. Why do we need another one? We don't. And of course, because men wrote it, they changed it, and they changed it again, and it was added to, and other ones were written, and now we've got church with a book this big. But then further, in the year 381 A.D., not only was Christianity a legal religion, it was made the official religion of the Roman Empire. And so now... We have people that are becoming Christians not because they love the Lord and are devoted to Him. We have Christians that are, are people that are becoming Christians because that provides them a good position in the state. It gives them a good social standing. And so what we have is a downward apostasy. I believe that throughout all this time, we could take a straight line across here and draw that there were some that were faithful. Jesus said the gates of Hades will not prevail against His church. And I believe that there were some faithful all the way along. The problem is, this group was the big group. And those guys are the ones who wrote all the history. And so the folks who followed the Lord, they were condemned as heretics. And so we have a hard time finding them throughout history. But I believe they were there. As this progression continued on, the church in Constantinople a city named after the Emperor Constantine, in 588 A.D. named their bishop the universal father of the church, or Pope. But the church in Rome said, you're not allowed to do that. He doesn't get to be the universal father of the church. Nobody ought to be the universal father of the church. However, over the next 20 or so years, they decided they liked it so much that in the year 606 A.D., Boniface III, who was the bishop of Rome, Boniface III, Bishop of Rome, was named the universal father of the church, the Pope. And so now we've got a competition. The church in Constantinople and the church in Rome are at odds with each other. And there's a rift here, both claiming supremacy. And this lasted for about 400 years, but in the year 1054, there was a division. Churches the world over lined up behind whichever one they wanted to consider the mother church and whichever universal father they would recognize. And no longer did they recognize each other as the true church or as really Christians. They viewed themselves as divided. One group was a heretic and the other was the true. That's the way they felt. And those who followed the church in Constantinople who followed that universal father became the Eastern Orthodox or the Greek Orthodox Church. Those who followed the Roman bishop, of course, became the Roman Catholic Church. Have you heard of these groups? Both of them still exist today. Now, before we move on in our study of history, we need to back up. And I want you to consider some things that were happening with the teaching during this time that all of this was changing. 
In the 4th century, there was a man named Augustine. He was a bishop in the church of Hippo, and, which was in, uh, in North Africa. And he made popular a doctrine entitled Original Sin. Original Sin is the idea that we're all born sinners. Every child here is a sinner, born that way, tainted by our father's sin, by Adam in the Garden of Eden when he ate the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Despite the fact that Ezekiel 18.20 says the sons will not bear the guilt of the father's sin, this was made popular. But it didn't stop there. Brother, take a look at the little children that we have here. If they were born in sin and they died, where would they go? Where do sinners go when they die? They go to hell. How many of you want any of these little kids if they died to go to hell? I don't. I doubt you do. You know, nobody dies. And so what do we do? Well, let's come up with a way to keep that from happening. We'll have infant baptism. Now, you can't find one single solitary example of infant baptism in the Bible, and yet, that's exactly what was taught. Because false doctrine snowballs. And we can't very well take these little babies and just shove them under the water, and so what are we going to do? Well, we'll sprinkle them or we'll pour that combined with supposed deathbed conversions of people who, even though they said they want to become Christians, didn't actually want to get baptized. So they sprinkled and they poured. But here's the thing I'm wanting you to understand. You see, a change in doctrine begets another change in doctrine. And it snowballs. It's just like a little white lie. When you tell a little white lie, what do you have to do? Again. You have to tell another one, don't you? And another one. And another one, it becomes darker and more hideous and more insidious until finally you're not even sure who you've lied to. It's so atrocious. And that's exactly what happens. You change the doctrine of Christ even a little bit. In order to try to maintain consistency, you'll change something else and something else and something else. This is an illustration. There was another doctrine that was developed during this time period, the doctrine of purgatory during this time period. I know that this is small because it's hard for me to get the whole chart on this screen. Right there is the word purgatory. If you look on if you uh, look on your sheet, I think it's typed on there. You look at the first four letters, P-U-R-G. If we took off a Tory and just put an E there, you'd have purge. You see, that's the idea. We're going to go to purgatory where our sins that are still on us will be purged. You see, there was a doctrine even before this one that said there were two different kinds of sins, mortal sins which damned the soul and we couldn't do anything about it, and venial sins which did not condemn the soul, and we had to pay for those sins. Jesus died for the mortal sins. He didn't die for the venial sins. And so, if when we die we have any of those venial sins in our hearts, why, we have to go to purgatory and be purged through torment and anguish and torture for hundreds, thousands of years, however long it took to pay for those sins we committed, and then we get to go to heaven. Now, brethren, that's not in the Bible. You've never once read about that in the Bible, and yet that was taught. How many of you here tonight would like to go to a place for thousands of years and be tormented in anguish and torture before you go to heaven? Anybody here want to do that? Nobody wants to do that. And so what do we do? Well, let's come up with a doctrine that keeps us from having to go there. And we have indulgences. And you take a look at that first part of that word and you find indulge. We can have indulgences, which means we can indulge in sin. Excuse me. We can do various things. This is called doing penance. 
We can say a rosary. We can go to confession. We can go to Mass. Say a Hail Mary or an Our Father. Or, the most popular one during this time period, we can give money to the church. And if I give enough money to the church, when I die, no matter how many venial sins I've committed, I get to go straight to heaven. Because I've already paid it all. And in fact, my dead great aunt Susie, who I love so much, who died and is now in torment right now in purgatory, I can put money in the collection plate and her soul will fly immediately into heaven. And so you can imagine the church during this time period was making all kinds of money because if you believed that, wouldn't you pay so that you wouldn't go there? Wouldn't you pay so that your relatives could get out of there? And they did. But, In the 1500s, a monk in Germany said, there's a problem here. I can't find anything about purgatory and indulgences in the Bible. And so in the year 1517, he nailed 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church in Germany, challenging any and every Catholic monk, a priest, member, whoever, to a debate. Most of those 95 theses had to do with indulgences and purgatory. Eventually, this man was excommunicated. We know him, of course, as Martin Luther. Not to be confused with Martin Luther King Jr. of the 1960s here in America. And I have to say that because I've done this lesson and folks have asked, well, wait a minute, didn't he just live 30 years ago? Different guy, just in case you weren't aware. He was eventually excommunicated, but that didn't stop him. He gathered together his own group of disciples and they began their own church in the year 1530 started essentially what came to be known as the Lutheran Church, and he wrote what was called the Augsburg Confession. I have on the board here Luther's Catechism, because he wrote, just as the Catholic Church did, a large catechism and a small catechism, and I have a copy of it right here, the large catechism of Martin Luther. I've read a section of this in the Bible class, but for those who haven't heard it, I would like to read it to you again. Mr. Luther said, look at these board presumptuous saints who will not or cannot read and study the catechism daily. They evidently consider themselves much wiser than God Himself and wiser than all His holy angels, prophets, and apostles, and all Christians. God Himself is not ashamed to teach it daily, for He knows of nothing better to teach. Now, God gave us this book that Mr. Luther wrote that he knew that God knew of nothing better to teach than this book. I disagree. And when this happened, this began what has been known as the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther and others like him were protesting the Catholic Church and they wanted to reform it. And so it has been called the Protestant Reformation. And those who have followed in its footsteps have been called collectively Protestants. But they're not just made up of Lutherans because it didn't stop here. King Henry VIII, King of England, was sorely upset that when it came to these indulgences and money going to the church that so much of his English subject money was heading over to Rome. And so when the Pope refused to annul his marriage with Catherine of Aragon, he used that as an instigation for a fight with the Catholic Church and separated himself off and began the Anglican Church, the Church of England. 
Here in America, that church is known as the Episcopalian Church. And in 1534, the first of its articles of religion was written. Today, if you're a part of the Episcopalian or Anglican Church, the book that governs that church is called the Book of Common Prayer. Mostly it's liturgical and has psalms and prayers in it, but in the back it has a catechism and it has the 32 articles of religion that make you an Episcopalian or make you an Anglican. But it didn't stop there. John Calvin in Switzerland. He was very much wanting to reform the church as well. He wanted to reform it back to the theology of his great theological predecessor, Augustine, who said original sin and all that went along with that. And so he began a church, which has come to be known as the Presbyterian Church. And in 1536, he wrote what is called the Institutes of the Christian Religion. And his disciples followed that today in Presbyterian churches. You will have a Westminster Confession of Faith. I got this book from an elder in a Presbyterian church as we were having a Bible study on doctrines of Calvinism. And what amazed me the most is when I asked him how this was used, he said that as an elder in that church, he had to go before a judicial committee within that denomination and confess to them that he agreed with everything in this book or he couldn't be an elder of that church. He did say that he had one difference with one thing that was said here, and they had to judge whether or not that was big enough to keep him from being an elder, and they decided it wasn't. But you see, the issue was not, do you agree with this book? The issue was, do you agree with this one? But which one did God give us? Didn't stop there. There was another group that was forming. And yet, unlike these churches, all of these believe infant baptism. But there was a church that was beginning to teach and a movement coming together that was saying, no, only adults. Only adults are candidates for baptism. And so anybody who was coming out of these churches going into that church had to be baptized again. And so they were called the rebaptists, or using the Latin term for again, Anna, called the Anabaptists. And in 1610, they creedalized themselves, signing the short confession of faith written by John Smith. Today, the main group of Baptists, especially in this area, follow the Baptist Church Manual or the Baptist Faith and Message Statement, which we've heard so much about in the news over the past few years. One more. Somewhat a second generation as the Reformation continued in England. Two brothers, John and Charles Wesley, stood up and said, there's got to be a better method to spirituality, a better method to worship, a better method to study, a better method to church. And so they started their group, and guess what? They called it the Methodists. And they began their work in about 1738, 1739. And they also have a book entitled The Methodist Discipline. And I could go on many, many more. In fact, you take a look at this book that was the Handbook of Denominations and we find out that these churches have divided again and again and again. In fact, there are, according to that, this book, in, written in 1981, 19 different Methodist kinds of, kinds of Methodist churches. Not to mention the fact that all of the modern Pentecostal churches actually have their roots in the Methodist church and were a division off of that. 
28 different kinds of Baptist churches, 10 different kinds of Presbyterian churches, 3 different kinds of Anglicans, 10 different kinds of Lutherans, 14 different kinds of Eastern churches, 7 different kinds of Catholic churches. And that's not counting all the independent groups and the different ones that continued on in this vein saying, well, we don't like what they're doing, we're just going to start something new ourselves. And on and on and on it has gone. And this is what's happened. Well, of course, we ask the question, how do we fit in all this? And if you're a guest here tonight, you're probably asking the question, well, how, how are you different? Are you a part of this? Well, I want you to know that we're not. What happened was in the 1800s here in America, there were men in different parts of the country that began to look at this. And they began to realize there's a problem here. Something is wrong with this. In fact, this reminds us of what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I am of Paul. I am of Cephas. I am of Apollos. We've got one that's of the Pope in Rome, one of the Pope in Istanbul, one of the Pope, uh, excuse me, not the Pope, one of Martin Luther, one of King Henry, one of John Calvin, John Smith, John Wesley. Sure, a lot of Johns. But they're all following these different people. And they began to look at this and say, what's the problem here? How can we resolve this? And two things they recognize is maybe we can get rid of all these divisive names. Now, people today say, oh, the names don't matter. Well, if that's true, then why not walk up to a Lutheran one day and, and call him a Roman Catholic? What will he tell you? I'm not a Roman Catholic, I'm a Lutheran. Why don't you walk up to a Methodist one day and call him a Baptist? I'm not. No, 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 I'm a Methodist. Why? Because these names do mean things. These names distinguish and define who we are. And I said, you know, maybe if we just got rid of all that, that would help. But secondly, if we got rid of these books, maybe that would help. Think about this for a moment. If I follow Luther's catechism, is that going to make me a Roman Catholic? What's it going to make me if I follow Luther's catechism? to make me a Lutheran, isn't it? And, and what if I follow this Methodist discipline? Is that going to make me a Baptist? What's it going to make me? It's going to make me a Methodist. And if I follow this Baptist church manual or the Baptist faith and message statement, is that going to make me an Eastern Orthodox? No, it's going to make me a Baptist. Well, here's my question, brethren, and friends who are visiting tonight. What if I just followed this book? What would that make me? I believe that would make me a Christian. And a Christian only. Nothing more and nothing less. Think about this. Let's go all the way back over here. And on that day when 3,000 were added to the body of Christ and folks added to the church daily, on that day, how many Eastern Orthodox were there? Not a single one, because that church hadn't been established yet. How many Roman Catholics were there on this day? Not a single one, because that church hadn't been established. How many Lutherans, or Episcopalians, or Presbyterians, or Baptists, or Methodists, or Pentecostals, or, or any number of churches we could think of today, how many of them were there on that day? Not a single one. What were these folks on this day? They were just Christians. And what did they follow? They just followed the doctrine of Christ. And a part of what church were they? They were a part of that church that Jesus talked about in Matthew 16, 18. They were part of His church. And that's it. And so, 
people began to say, you know what we really need to do is get rid of all of this extraneous stuff. Let's just go back to the Bible. Let's just restore that. Let's just do what they did. And if we do what they did, guess what? We'll be what they were. They said, why don't we just call ourselves whatever they called themselves? Whether we're talking about individuals. Let's call ourselves disciples. Let's call ourselves Christians. Let's just call the congregations what they called themselves. Churches of Christ. We could use church of God. The way is used. All of these. There's so many that we could use, but let's just use these and use them in the way that they were used. Demonstrating ownership and who and what we are. And if we do that, if we do it the way this book says, don't you think we'll be doing it properly? And then in organization. Because certainly there's going to be more than just a few people that want to be involved in this. How would we organize it? If a congregation comes together, a group of people band, how do we organize that? And if there are different ones in different places, how are they organized together? Well, if we just go back to this book and see how those people did it then, same the reason we'll be doing it properly. What do you think? And worship. And that's what this is all about, isn't it? Worshiping the God who saved us, who sent His Son to die for us. How should we worship Him? Same reason if we just do it this way, the way they did in the New Testament. Same reason we'll be doing what God wanted, don't you think? And plan of salvation. I imagine that you're like me, and you want to go to heaven. You want to be saved? Well, if we're going to be saved, it stands to reason that we ought to do it the same way these folks did. Because if we get saved the way they did, doesn't it stand to reason that we'll have done what God wanted? And so we ask the question. I'm just going to ask you. Which, how do you want to name yourself? you want to name yourself according to this book? According to this one? You tell me. You want to name yourself according to this book? You want to organize according to this book? Or this one? What about worship? You want to worship according to these books? What about this one? What about getting saved? Becoming a child of God? You want to do that according to these books? Or this one. It's just that simple. Let's just get rid of all of that. If you want to have books to read and, and study and maybe gain some insight, that's fine, but we don't need books written by men to govern churches. God's already given us the books to govern. And that's what we're all about. And please understand this, that while we are certainly appreciative of men who went before us, and realize this before us. We do not follow them. And we do not follow what they wrote. We follow Christ alone. 